Masculinity is not a fixed thing. People can and do express their masculinity in many different ways and adapt their performance according to their environment. Rather than focus on dominant or stereotypical forms, I'm back talking with Dr. David Maguire about how men in vulnerable prisoner units adapt and cope. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Hello and welcome to part two of a two-part episode with Dr. David Maguire, who's a specialist in prisoner masculinities. If you haven't listened to part one, that's episode nine, I really urge you to go and do that first as there's some great insights from Dave in there and it will help this episode make sense. At the end of the last episode, we left the discussion with Dave introducing his recent paper on vulnerable prisoner masculinities in an English prison. We discussed how masculinity is a performance in constant flux and how it's subject to shift and change. Dave also talked about how he personally navigated the performance of masculinity, both inside prison and on the out. So now we're going to actually turn to the journal article, the link to which is in the show notes, so you can go and read that yourself. And rather than focus on the more dominant forms of aggressive masculinity, which most research on masculinity focuses on, Dave's research investigates the responses of men lower down in the prison social hierarchy, specifically those who've been placed into vulnerable prisoner units and how they adapt to their new position there. So it's worth going back to episode nine to hear a little bit more about those. In there, Dave outlined how within the VPU, the vulnerable prisoner unit, hierarchy is created along several lines and it tends to be an amalgamation of several things, including what crime you were in there for in the first place, and then also according to your reputation or criminal credentials before entering the unit. And where you fall in this social hierarchy when all of these things are taken into consideration contributes to the coping mechanism or adaptation to the unit. Dave discusses three different kinds of adaptations to the VPU. The first is the acceptance adaptation, and that's the one in the clip that we'll hear now. And there are two others, the acceptance adaptation and the pragmatic adaptation, which I'll be asking Dave about afterwards. So in this clip, Dave refers to Jeff and Jack, who he calls the heads or faces of the unit. And these are the more dominant guys, the ones who use protest as an adaptation to the vulnerable prisoners unit. It's a very loud and overt form of protest, and they do this by othering the other people on the unit to force them into lower or lesser positions in the social hierarchy and maintaining some kind of dominance for themselves. So here's Dr. David Maguire talking about his paper on vulnerable prisoner masculinities in an English prison. So as well documented in in the literature, prison masculinities are constantly shifting. However, in exploring how prisoners both import and adapt masculinity to profoundly denigrated carceral sites of the VPU, I found that there were distinct categories of adaptation that stood out. And it's important to say that there was some inevitable overlap between these different um, categories. But for analytical ease, I I found um, that protest was a form of adaptation, 
There was a form of subversive mainstream prison culture as a form of adaptation, and there was a pragmatic adaptation. What I'm going to focus on in this brief extract is protest uh, uh, as adaptation. Um, and, and two of the main men here, um, Jack and Jeff, were seen as the main heads or faces in this small, vulnerable prisoner cohort. And both, before being moved on to the um, vulnerable prisoner unit, claimed to have well-established pre-prison um, reputations and solid criminal credentials. Um, as Jack, in his quote, suggests, open quote, I've been to two category A high security prisons. I've done about five category B prisons, all long term. I went on the roof in one jail, dirty protests. I've been caught with mobile phones and drugs. I've been shipped out for assaulting a member of staff in another prison. So a lot of people knew me. Glenn, open quote, I've got bouties on my head. People are trying to do me in. A kind of hitman got himself arrested and it was to do with me. It's exciting for me with someone trying to do me in. I'd love to see them try. These solid prisoner and gangster masculine narratives while being under the protection in the vulnerable prisoner unit are fraught with contradictions and tensions that will not be immediately obvious to those outside prison and criminal cultures. To live amongst, quotations, beasts and child rapists and to take official protection from the prison regardless of circumstance and despite criminal past exploits and hierarchical positionings, erodes any revered masculine status. In the eyes of those who inhabit this world and appear to live by the inmate criminal code, both have shown extraordinary weakness consistent with subordinated masculinities. In the relatively small pond that is the VPU space, Jeff and Jack played up to and generated significant masculine capital from being the big fish. Yet key to maintaining this gender identity was largely reliant on importing or salvaging aspects from their previous masculine status, mostly performed through their overt protest at being on the unit and their denigration of the other with whom they were forced to live. Both were keen to demonstrate their resistance. Jack reported that he is regularly warned and sanctioned for calling sex offenders dirty paedophile nonces and for expressing his hatred of being forced to live with these monsters, as well as sharing his disgust for them to their faces. He noted that his uncontrolled hatred has on occasion seen him moved to the punishment block for cooling off periods. Similarly, Jeff, resistant, was noted through disgust and shame. Open quote. I believe there should be a death sentence for paedophiles because paedophiles can't change. Disgusted. I am embarrassed. So embarrassed. Close quote. Both spent a great deal of the interview recounting their acts of resistance while on the unit and claim little agency or choice in their current formal status as vulnerable prisoners. This emasculating identity was imposed, they claimed, either due to prison protocol or because of circumstances beyond their control. They shared the difficult realisation that there, there is 
little chance of a return to their previous prison identities. Importantly, Jeff and Jack's experience highlights the fluidity of carceral masculinities and show how easily even a higher status masculinity can rapidly flow downwards to the lower end of prison hierarchies. However, importantly, once at or near the bottom, fluidity is significantly restricted as movement back upstream to any previous status is highly unlikely. Okay, thanks for that. And there's, there's so many interesting aspects to that clip. And I think the thing that stuck with me most was the precariousness of the status. You know, you've talked about masculinity not being fixed, but constantly shifting. And that even if you have a well-respected reputation that provides you with some level of protection beforehand, it, it can be lost so quickly. And But on the reverse, that upward social mobility is close to impossible. And so what I'm wondering is, do you think that uh, do you think that this is an overt kind of acknowledged fear in the minds of the men in this situation that this could happen to them? Or is it more just this like latent unconscious knowing that we all we all know we have to be on our guard kind of thing? And do you think it's that fear that drives violence in men's prisons? Yeah, I think I think it is. So I think, you know, certainly from some of my, my respondents and, and again reflecting on my own e experiences I think mostly people just want to get into jail mm. and, and Ben talks about this they don't want to get into jail but they end up in jail and they want to just get the time done and get out as 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 as, as without incident and as soon as the possible kind of date they can get out and um, you know you don't want to compromise your time anymore but you, but you have to be alert and, and, and I think a lot of men in these spaces carry that. You have to be alert to not be taken advantage mm. of. Um, and, you know, that, that there is that, that, you know, so you do try and project a willingness. You know, all the guys said consistently, you know, um, it's not, often, and this is an important point, often it's not so much about win, winning the fight, mm. it's about a willingness to fight mm. that, fears that that would give you some space to just not be taken advantage yeah if someone thinks you know <laughs> if i take the piss out of this guy and he you know and and he get you know he's, he's up for his up his game um and he gets a, he gets a slap in that puts me on my ass the, the risk is too great so if, if, if somebody's willing and you know even if you kind of end up having a scrap and someone says well at least you know you stood your ground that's that garners more respect and, and gives you enough space on the flip side of that though people have often wrote or some i can't remember i can't name them but you know the flip side of that is every one of those that just goes round all the time trying to unpredictably kind of break out in 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 violence or or kind of you know unpredictably mm. just hit hit out you lose status for that too you're seen as somebody who can't do the jail who can't handle the jail yeah. who's just kind of so would you say you that's know, often usually the, the younger prisons have sort of graduated from the youth prisons yeah juveniles yeah. a bit of a dance yeah. adapting to that more kind of mature 
um, masculinity for sure. But of course, it can still happen on some of the on some of the mm. kind of older heads who who who, who still want to kind of hold on to some kind of youth kind of um, hardness yeah. or whatever. Um, but but yeah, there is you know there is a way of being to try and and navigate. You know, Ricky Cadelli talks about it. It's about navigating the changing nature of risk, mm. and that that nature of risk will change depending where you are. You know, you could be on a very settled wing, and somebody might get shipped in or or get or come in from somewhere else, and the whole dynamic, the whole risk, the whole kind of feel of the space will change, yeah. and that's what that you know that's what prison offers. And it's how you navigate that. Yeah. You, how you avoid it, how you make sure it doesn't, you know, some people are good at just kind of keeping low, avoiding, sticking with mm. the, 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 the kind of background and the crew in the background. So it's always about recognising the risk and how you, how, how you put a performance to kind of navigate that. Yeah. And for the ones that don't try and seep into the background and like Jeff and Jack in your... Uh, excerpt just then the ones that do this overt performance of protest do you think that protest is for the other people in the vpu for the other prisoners on main location for the staff or is it for themselves somehow to cope emotionally with their situation i think that's i think that's a really good insight i think it's a bit of all that mm. i think it's, it's for themselves it's it's salvaging you know uh, some of the other us, you know, some of the, uh, of course, you can't get it all in there. But some of, some of, Jack's extract on what it's done to him to be put on the VPU is really powerful mm. kind of stuff. Um, you know, he said, Jack claims he got put, he got stitched up, he got put on on the VPU. Mm. It was a stitch up, and he says, I can't tell you, Dave, what that officer has done to me by putting me on it mm. i just can never it's interesting because jack's been in and out of prison most of his life um, most of his young life from 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 very very young mm. he said i can never come back to prison but after what has happened here i have to get through this sentence and i can never come back to prison because i just cannot cope with the facts that i've ended up on here with these people mm. um and 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 um, um, Jeff talks about the shame themselves, uh, himself about the shame of you know being on this in this space, mm. and, and so you can imagine to try and cater some of that, they 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 try and salvage some of that past status, a to show because remember there's an obligation often there as well is if if you're in a you know, if somebody, you know, that a core part of working class identity that 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 many of us struggle with, and that we want to walk, you know, we don't quite know how to balance in contemporary society is this notion of protector and provider of the vulnerable, and we often position women and children as 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 our vulnerable. Who, who as men, we have to kind of, you know, this isn't what I believe, but this is a, this is a lot of the powerful ideology of. Mm. of of masculinity so you know you're among people who, who 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 you know you would be seen had they hurt you you have to you know you, you're meant to follow through on 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 standing up for that kind of obligation yeah. so you can imagine this the, the way these men are trying to get especially if you have that very particular protest over over in that jack and and um jeff have 
So, of course, your question's dead right. It's a bit for them. It's a bit for those they're sharing. The, you, I, I'm not, you know, they're putting a message out there. I know what you've done and I know what my role is, um, but I can't do anything. Yeah. But, of course, they did. And, and which is something that's really interesting is that some of these men live with this contrary bind of, <coughs> of not wanting to be on the unit, mm. but completely frightened of compromising the place on it. Yeah. Um, and that was a tricky bind for them to carry. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And can you talk about the other two forms of adaptation to the unit? So you've got acceptance and pragmatic adaptations. Yeah, I think for me this was one of the the interesting findings that come from Brian and Dylan. Um, Were talking to them, I was struck by how they had got very comfortable with being on the VPU unit. Mm. Um, and the, the way they kind of explained that, I thought, was 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 so fascinating in a way that um, it could be read as they're subverting this kind of um, dominant prison masculinities that position them at the bottom and they're kind of flipping that over and saying, um, well, actually, trying to live up to that, that craziness on the main landings were you know people want to fight every day and tax you and the brutality of it is just is just stupid mm. and actually to come over here and live with a, a more a less kind of invested population in in that masculine culture of the prison takes actual balls mm. um and i thought there was something really interesting in 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 their position on that um you know it, it you know they 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 there was both Brian, well, all the, the men I spoke to was, was intuitive and perceptive, but Brian and Dylan's way of coping or adapting to that unit was almost as if it was as if they had agency in it and it was something that they're, 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 you know, they've, they've learned to live with and it's actually quite strategic to be over. Mm. You know, it's an older population, you don't have the same rows with drugs, there's not the same intimidation, there's not the same violence, it's much... Why wouldn't you live over here? Mm. Why, why, why would you want to be invested in all that over there? That, that, you know, that I make clear within the paper that they struggle to live up to anyway. Mm. You know, uh, you've got to look at some of the background that, that took them over there, and it's brutal, actually. Their, their, their prison time was quite brutal. One of them, from a very early age... Um, was put in a cell depending when you got sent to jail back in the day you could end up on a YP wing in a man's jail between 15 and 21 yeah um, I think and this as, as a 15 year old one of these fellas were put in with a 19 year old and his first time in jail I think mm. um, to wait to find this 19 year old um, bull whipping him in the face with a towel and laughing hysterically in the middle of the night. You can imagine, like, the picture yeah. he paints of that is just absolutely harrowing. Mm. Um, and he got up the next day and asked for a move. Um, of course, the staff weren't that subtle with that request, and it looked like he'd kind of gone, gr- he'd informed on this cellmate. So from that point on, mm. and it's a point I make in my work, is his identity is a, is a, is, was compromised very early yeah. on among the men, among the landing. And 
it's so important your earlier identities within the prison space certainly a local prison because it stays with you right? mm. how you perform in them early prison days are very very important and so that stayed with him he was seen as a bit of a muppet and i think his prison time was hard the the thing that pushed him over the edge and i think sometimes men cope in prison if they've got good people outside they can go and get a parcel on a visit that helps if you're kind of half weak that helps to kind of mitigate some of your vulnerabilities if you're bringing bits on the landing <coughs> and you know you're bringing a smoke or whatever you, you know you can half mitigate your vulnerabilities then. Mm. but what had happened with this this situation with this particular guy is he'd come in with a parcel secreted in his bulk mm. Word got, word got out on the landing that he got this, and the thing that pushed him over there are brutal. Yeah, absolutely. Were, and there's a lot. There's a whole podcast here in this act is where a group of fellas gone into his pod and tried to forcibly remove this pod yeah. with a spoon. Um, Spooning, yeah. Yeah, you know that 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 for me is it 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 it, it just. Frightened. There's just too many things going on there. That 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 was enough for him to to say I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And and he ended up back on on the landing. And the same with um, with with um, yeah. So this was with Dylan. this was Brian and Dylan in as part of the acceptance adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Um. And the other was just seen as a, as an informer, but um. I think what's interesting about these two is that when you look, they didn't go on the voluntary. It, it, a set of events took them on there. Um, and I, I was I wanted to caution against giving too much agency um, to this 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 notion of subverting dominant prison masculinities. I think it the the pre. VPU identities played a big part in their journey mm. into the vulnerable prisoner unit. And once on there, they they found a narrative that, that suited their, their, their position. Right. So so why wouldn't you live on it? So a bit more retroactive. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the pragmatic adaptation, which was most of the group really, is they'd found their way on the... It's important to say none of these men... Uh, certainly in the eyes of, of all this cohort, was, was not seen in any way as, a, as or labelled or listed or suspected a, a, a sex offender in any, in any means, mm. which is what I wanted to distinguish the, the, the sample from because I wanted to try and show a mainstream identity, people who'd lived on mainstream yeah. and was forced into VP, you, how, how them identities kind of um, imported or, or not. So none of these guys were seen as, as being on the other than what they might have been compromised with on the main unit. Mm. So this, this, this bigger group, the, the pragmatic group, um, had gone on there for debt, for um, stealing from um, the wrong person outside, but as he put it, um, had gone on there for different kinds of things. Um, but for all of them, there was a mentality there that, um, you know, I don't want to think too much about where I am mm. and the people I'm with. Mm. And I just need to get this done and get off and get out. Um, and I thought that was just a real pragmatic 
way of trying to survive that that space and how it kind of asks lots of questions of them as as men. Yeah. No, that's great. I wanted to ask you a question more logistically. Obviously, getting access to prison is one thing, but can you talk a little bit about the process of talking to the men and interviewing them? Because I know this is part of a larger study that you were doing, but what is it like to actually sort of start the interaction with them? Did you need to sort of work up a rapport before they'll start opening up and over what kind of time period did you speak to them and did you ask them specifically about masculinity or was it more just broadly about coping with being on the VPU? That's a really good question and you know I think there's something really interesting in, and it's something I talk a lot about in terms of this um, you know in terms of Rod and Andy and, and this convict criminology kind of work I've gone in the Rod Earl and Andy Aristi yeah and um, yeah you know, I've tried to, to do a research in a prison as an ex-prisoner. Um, but I've always been keen that I don't go in there as an ex-prisoner. I go in there as a researcher. Mm. And these are some of the tensions and, and, and debates that I have with myself and, and others is, is that I'm reluctant. And it comes, hopefully I've made it clear in, in this, in this um, interview, in this podcast, that... I don't see, I see prison as playing a part in many other spaces. I don't see it as that would be enough to reduce myself to that identity because my work is actually about how different spaces interconnect in journeys to prison. Mm. Um, so I was keen to go in there as a researcher first. And of course, you know, the, 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 these narratives around privilege, inside of privilege, and and coming in as somebody with this tacit knowledge and uh, uh, you know it didn't it i think sometimes in this type of research in the castle space is is not always played out um so i i i wanted to go in there as a researcher doing a, a research project but of course that only lasted so long till it till security found out i was an ex-prisoner and then access and all this mm. started you know potentially being close to compromised and one thing I was really, really keen to do is not go in there as talking to the men as an ex-prisoner. Right. Um, that was something I was, I was absolutely certain I didn't want to do. So did you disclose it at all at any point? No. Right. There was, there was things I was able to kind of, and I think this gets to your question that I'm getting to. I'm going to get to your question <laughs> in a minute. I have lots of issues with this idea. I've worked, so, and it's something I would have liked to have talked more about that I've not. I've, before coming to this research, I've worked a lot with the men that I study and I research. So I've worked a lot with people in, you know, I say work, I've, I've done kind of um, particular types of roles in PRUs and consultancy work in PRUs. I've done work with, with young men involved in street violence. When you say PRUs? And pupil referral units yeah. and alternative learning. I've worked a lot with young men who are on the verge of being excluded mm -hmm. from education. Mm -hmm. I've worked with different types of education authorities on that kind of stuff. I've worked a lot with young street kind of homeless men or, or people who are, uh, are have been forced from their homes due to youth violence and stuff like that. So I, I took all that, that in with me. I, I wasn't just going in there as, as somebody... Who'd, who'd come out of prison uh, you know I had quite a legacy of work before 
um, doing this project. Yeah. I've been out of prison some years. Uh, and one thing I was keen not to do is go in and say, hey, I'm an ex-prisoner and I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I think we share a lot of similarities. I'm interested in who you are. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just wasn't comfortable with mm. that. And I always think, I always compare it to, to like, I like the idea of these power, you know, the, we do go in there as researchers. There is particular types of power dynamics. There are people, I think, you know, I'm going in there looking at their experiences as experts. I don't want to, I don't want them to feel like I in any way minimise that with my own experience. And of course, very much related to our work as masculinities. We know masculinity is a hierarchical. We know the minute we go in there and we start saying, oh yeah, no, I was away back in the day. Mm. And then we start getting into a conversation, oh, what for, where yeah. do you jail? Yeah. And I think we start entering into these hierarchies. And I think what's really good for me or what I thought would be more beneficial to the research project is the docility that mm. um, Louis Farouk carries around. Is that not knowing? Mm. Is that tell me about this experience? Don't assume I know this experience. Yeah. So I wanted to try and go in there. But having said all that, and this is where I'm long-windedly asking you questions and where I'm thinking in my head, uh, you know, this this guy's got a lot of editing to <laughs> What I was able to show is I was able to ask the right questions and if mm-hmm. I, I was able to follow things up, I think. I was able to show a genuine kind of um, interest, a genuine knowledge that came out um, much more subtly in the interviews. Um, I think a lot of people talk about certainly the people who's read my work, they say I really capture a richness of, 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 of the men I'm talking to and the men, you know, I had, I had tears in the interviews. I had people talk about profound fears mm-hmm. the first time coming to prison. And I think that's because I experienced them things myself, mm-hmm. but I didn't overtly say it. I was, you know, the fear of prison in the first days, the fear of, of ending up on, on numbers, mm. of being called out on the landings. I carried all that internally, I think, when I was doing these interviews. I, I You know, the, the the way some of the men were struggling with, with particular parts of the jail, I'd experienced, but I hadn't overtly said it. But I, maybe there was an empathy there that was projected, I don't know. Mm. But um, I was able to, you know... Uh, the practicalities is, when I got behind... You know, and it's the same thing. When we get people away from that performance that backstage half of that backstage of course people will still project what they think we want to see as masculinities but I saw a vulnerability to the men and that comes out in the interviews mm. and I I think I give something back in a way that that not enough actually but I, I, I was able to kind of follow and pursue the right areas I think that that was um valid to their experience in the study but were they were they very ready to give up this very personal information quite quickly or did it did you have to speak with them over a longer period before they were able to show you their own vulnerabilities right so that's a good question that's one of my problems with coming in there as an ex-prisoner because i think i think that the minute you declare you're an ex-prisoner you have to do a lot of work before that, after that. Mm. Um, and I think one guy summed it up, I think I've told you this before, is is when I asked him what he thinks about ex-prisoners coming back into prison, he said, Dave, there's only two types of prisoners that come back to jail, and that's your God squad and your grasses. <laughs> um, right. 
and I think that captures something there. Of course, it's not true, mm. but that that's that you know that needs work to kind of work with that. Mm. And I don't think you get that in an hour's interview or in a two-hour interview. I think that takes a bit of consistency, a bit of turning up, a bit of people getting to know each other. Yeah. I didn't have that luxury in a lot of the cases. Um, but I think, you know, I think when you talk to men about masculinity, which we don't do enough of, and we we are able to kind of unpick what that is in that interview, which I think we did. Mm. I think we get to some of these, you know, I think we get to some of these challenges. I think we get to unfold some of these fears of, of, you know, coming on the sweat box to a prison of, on that first time. Mm. Who's going to be there? Am I going to be okay? Mm. Am I going to, you know, all these brutal myths that we see or that people talk about on the estate. Am I going to get raped in the showers? Yeah. I, is my manhood going to be taken away from me? These are the kind of narratives that these men was able to kind of get in touch with in, 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 in the interview. Mm. And it was, you know, it was a humbling experience. A lot of men were carrying a lot of pain in the interview as well. There was one, there was one fella there who'd not long lost his baby. Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of men carrying a lot of vulnerabilities mm. um, because a part of my wider book will be looking at their absence as men on the outside um, and how um, this cohort that I was interested in, which I haven't really said very much about, is that I wasn't interested in your long-term, long-serving prisoners as much. My sample was purposely... Um, talking to those who had been in and out of prison and who had that kind of interaction between the local estate and the local prison. Mm. But what was interesting about this group is most of them had done what you might call a life sentence on an instalment plan. They right. spent so much time yeah. in and out of jail that they'd been in prison far more times than they'd been on the out. And as a consequence, they recognised their absence as men. So when I was asking them questions around, you know, what do you, you know, what do you look up to in a man? Uh, everything they said was everything they'd not been. Mm. Um, and often you could see there was that realization across the interviews. Yeah. You know, the breadwinner ideal, they yeah. were so wedded to this breadwinner model. So wedded to this kind of, you know, domesticity, get a partner, get a kid. <coughs> get a house everything's going to be alright I'll go out and get a job and sustain us all and protect us yeah. all uh, pre you know protect my mother protect my brother they hadn't done that and there was a realisation in some of our exchanges about that absence and the shame and guilt that came with that so yeah you're right it was talking about these issues was was, an, was you know they, they revealed a lot of vulnerability and a lot of openness and honesty mm. I, I can, you know, there was a lot of sincerity there, um, but I think it was, I think, um, I don't know, I don't want to give myself any, it wasn't down to me, and maybe there was just the right, the right things to say at the right time, and, uh, but it, you know, there was some real great, rich interviews around that experience, yeah. that we all struggle as, as men, I think we're tapping into something that as contemporary men, we're all kind of, we're all kind of questioning whether consciously or unconsciously. Mm. And I think that was the moment, really. Well, yeah, and I know that when I've, you know, I talk to friends and colleagues and things about masculinity or about feminism, there's some people that, that don't necessarily think about it all the time will sh shut down as men thinking about feminism and think, oh, I don't, you know, it's, 
it's attacking me or it's not for me or, you know, any criticism of the patriarchy. They kind of take it as a personal slight rather than seeing yeah. that the patriarchy and the system that we're born into actually hurts them and creates this un- unobtainable figure of this Superman that's protective that you can't live up to all the time every day and especially in this case in prison where their like literal physical ability to protect their family on the outside is taken away yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> that's that's a brilliant um, succinct way of putting it <laughs> oh, thanks <laughs> um all righty well i wanted to ask you now um so I know you do lots of direct practitioner work and you have done lots of different kinds in the past and you're passionate about certain aspects of your work. And so how do you personally come to your decisions about where you place your energies? So that's, that's a, real, a real good question. I, I, let me try and answer this in the best honest way I can. I, you know, I, I come out of prison in... The last time I was in prison... I was released in 99 and I came to London um, to do some treatment, substance misuse treatment centre. But uh, that's where my journey started. And as part of that journey, I didn't just start on the academic route. I was doing volunteering in different places. I started volunteering for organisations like Crisis and, and I ended up working a lot, doing a lot of project work. And then I started doing a lot of work with in education um, spaces with with boys like me who was on the verge of exclusion. Mm-hmm. I had this, I had this. You know, I I I think, you know, even with my own son, I think boys and education is a real big issue mm-hmm. currently. Uh, I think we look at, um, you know, we look at some. I don't want to get in. I don't for one minute subscribe to this um, crisis masculine crisis discourse. Mm-hmm. discourse. Yeah. But I I do worry about boys and education, and it's not that they've they've you know they're just failing there's always been a certain group of boys who's resisted and rejected education and that was something where i wanted to put my energy so i worked a lot in different um i wanted to try and work with the more extreme end of of that and and work with those who were already on the verge of being excluded or excluded Mm. so i've done a lot of that kind of work then i worked a lot as part combining them to two roles i suppose i did a lot of work um with street kind of young men in, in in particular London boroughs who was involved in post-cold kind of street type violence and so it was all them working in them different spaces and seeing how different ways of being boys and men in these spaces kind of led to more and more extreme versions of identity mm. was what actually kind of wet my um, what led to my research kind mm. of interests really but as I've gone on and done my research, I've maintained different bits of consultancy and, and work within these more practitioner type of environments. I, I only ever, I mean, it was quite an it was quite an accident, really, my PhD in many ways, because I had this real drive coming out of prison and working in this sector that I wanted to work in social work. I really wanted. I really thought I would be a brilliant social worker. Mm. And I remember the first degree I went for was at Brunel to be a social worker. I, and, and perhaps in fairness, I hadn't been out of prison that long. And they said, no, we'll never get you a placement. We're not going to offer you mm. a place. Um, and then 10 years later, I tried again. 
I got interviews at all these different places to do a master's in social work. Uh, and I had 10 years away, I had a first class degree under my belt, I had a master's under my belt. Um, no, sorry, Mr. Maguire, I'll never get you a placement. Mm. Um, and it was my wife who said to me, look, just go on and do a PhD. You've got some brilliant research there. You've got some great practical experience. And so that's when I sent out, I did proposals and sent out the cheeky emails. Yeah. Um, but but my, my, my ambition was to be um, a social worker because I'm, I'm good at working with people. I've never felt massively comfortable in the academy mm. really I've, I've always you know i am dyslexic i'm dyspraxic writing is a struggle um i can spend a day on a paragraph uh, you know it's a real real struggle um so it's not a place where i thought you know this is where i'm just going to churn out lots of <laughs> i'm going to churn out lots of publications yeah. i'm going to sit on the on the top of that um tower and um pontificate i've always seen my getting these credentials to give me credibility to do the work that I'm good at and I'm passionate about. Mm. Um, and I've worked a lot in, in you know, a lot over, over doing my PhD, I was doing a lot of work in prisons for, for the connections that I've kind of um, maintained over the years, you know, running groups, getting men to talk about being men in prison spaces, mm. which I think is really, really important, interrogating these, these ideals of, of, you know, some of the stuff that we talk about as academics, it's it, it's one of the frustrating parts of this is, as academics, we talk about these themes and issues that are more important uh, about the people mm. that are more important to be talking about to the people that we get these themes and ideas and issues from. Yeah. But we never seem to take it back to them. We take it from them, yeah. but we never take it back to those that it represents. And that's always been somewhere I've been... Um, passionate about is how we kind of talk about this stuff outside of the academy in schools in young offenders in in why in in yacht teams in mm. in different kind of you know the spaces where these men are navigating these identities um so i suppose that's always i've always straddled them them two words mm. you know in 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 the i i was you know really um you know Recently, I, I, I was lucky, I got a British Academy Fellowship. I've just done a lot of data gathering on, on post-prison transitions into changing labour markets, which is, which is a, a, another area. Uh, whereas men, we, we try and adapt to these shifting workplaces and these shifting divisions of labour and where we have to do docility and deference. And many coming from the prison space mm -hmm. and the estates that I come from struggle to kind of adapt to them spaces so that's so th all these things are interconnecting but then an opportunity came up to work for um the prison reform trust which is an organization i've got a lot of respect mm. for um and it's working with um people serving long prison sentences so i'm running a project for those serving long, long, mm -hmm. long prison sentences um and i think I think what I wanted to do is is I wanted, and it take you know it it goes back to these narratives. I don't want to go and do the job as somebody who's got experience for the sake of having been away somewhere. I want to I want to use my journeys and my experiences in the different and you mentioned it the different parts of intelligences and knowledges and experience and how they come together mm. to allow me to do to do what I might be better at or or might be do some good at. And that's that's where I've got to, 
I've got to now. I think my my research, I like to take it back to those that it represents. Yeah. So I've I've spoke a lot at prisons with prisoners. I've I've been invited to talk in different places where I'll, I'll reach the people that it represents. Um, and now this work, I think, will allow me to learn more and to, to and to to perhaps have an impact in in policies that 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 you know might you know have have some impacts on 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 people's lives and, or, or whatever. Well, yeah, and I wanted to ask you specifically about that side of it, and you know, obviously, choosing where you place your efforts, but then what impacts are you hoping to have in the end? What does impact mean for you in your work? That's that's a good question. Um, you know, I I, I finished my my uh, this first study, I suppose. One examiner reading it, he said, he said, he said, Dave, this is a bleak study. <laughs> he, said, he said, there's there's just no light in this study, um, and. You know that they're, they're right. I, 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 I think a lot of what has driven a lot of what has. You know what, what both drives and frustrates me is a lot of the literature that I read around this study on my first journey into education and my journey throughout. And is there are things we've known about this group for years and years and years, and people have been talking about and saying for years and years and years, and we don't see very much happening within the spaces where we can have impact. Mm. And, I, you know, I, I don't want... I, I, you know, I'm far from any kind of, you know, s thinking some kind of saviour complex. I just, I just think that we need a more diverse, knowledgeable kind of practitioner force. Uh, we need to embrace both... You know, we see it a lot in, in other sectors. We see it a lot in substance misuse where we embrace a whole range of people from a whole range of um, backgrounds and experiences mm -hmm. and knowledges and people who... And I think at my current place, I, I'm, I'm at, we're at a moment where we've got a team. I, I mean, I'm not... I, I should clarify, I'm not here speaking for or as the PRT, yeah. but I've found myself to be in a position where I'm with a team that's got a real diverse range of experiences and perspectives and knowledge that you know will generate some kind of um, some kind of impact I think what was most attractive to this current work that I'm doing now is is that the whole ethos of this project is that the priorities will be set by those it represents and how we kind of get mm -hmm. out there and and find out what them priorities are and how we can kind of have some dialogue of, of, of making sure that this particular group who are serving extraordinarily long sentences can talk back to some of this policy and, and regimes mm -hmm. that impact them. So that, for me, is an attractive... I think there are, there's a lot of scope for our impact there. That's what is really attractive yeah. about this post. I think working for organisations that, that, you know, that can straddle both um, policy and practice and... Um, are beginning to harness a whole range of experiences is something that's really attractive for me. Mm. Um, you know, this kind of work, you know, I, talking about men 
men talking about men to other men, how we can do much more of that is something I've always been interested in. Yeah. Um, and and you know, although I should say this this <laughs> this caravan isn't just about men, but how we kind of get people. You know, I think I'm working on a particular special edition with a couple of colleagues now, and, and you're involved in that. How we get, um, you know, people who are in particular positions of power or, or in, in particular places to think about how important masculinity and gender are in them spaces, mm. how, how we can kind of interact with, with, you know, how we can learn much more about what it might be to be, you know, for those men at the brutal end of, of dominant masculinities, which is what I close my paper with, is, is, is how we try and understand a bit more. Um, you know, I think it was Sim who said, you know, um, many men try and live, live up to these notions of hyper-masculine ideals long after they can meet the criteria for yeah. You know, how do we give these people an out? How do we, how do we you know... Mm. And I think that a lot of what I found in a lot of the spaces that I work is there's not very many outs. There's not very many alternative avenues of being men mm. within these spaces. And so them are the kind of things that I'm interested in when we talk about impact. Yeah. You know, how do we kind of get discussions um, with men? Not, not, your, not your men's movement type of kind of aggressive hugging and shouting at each other type of movements, but how we can have a real balanced, measured, um, analytical ideas of what it is to be men in contemporary society, what it is to be men confined in spaces with other men. Yeah. Uh, I think what we're, and I think you talk about this in your own paper, is I think what we need to learn from, and it doesn't have to be one or the other, and, I, and I've got to be really careful how I word this, is we need to learn from a lot of the great advocacy and policy work that, that people have done in raising the vulnerabilities of, of women mm. in particular kind of yeah. um, spaces and institutions. That's not to say that um, it's one or the other, but I think, I think what, has been, what has been really powerful and, and rightly so is there's been a, a great kind of collaborative... Um, movement to recognise some of the gendered pains of imprisonment for women yeah. um, and rightly so and much more needs to be done absolutely I think we need to look at the gendered pains of imprisonment how we kind of might understand that for men too mm -hmm. because there are vulnerable what we can learn from their movements how can we get men recognising their vulnerabilities much more how can we get those who work with men recognising their vulnerabilities a bit more how can we learn from some of their, their, their movements? Um, you know, to understand gender, you know, can be really a productive um, platform to do good work. Definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, yeah, in that paper, which hopefully will be out at some point soon, it's, yeah, I, I talk about how the prisons, you know, men's prisons are made to hold the physical bodies of men, but not really the holistic three-dimensional people that exist in society. And yeah, if we take the lead of some of the brilliant feminist work that's been done looking at, like you say, the gendered planes with women, then I think obviously just replicating it with men doesn't make sense, but observing the work and the hard graph that's been done looking at the gendered aspects of women in prison 
it can be inspirational for for doing the same with men in a way that you know tackles the sort of antisocial aspects of masculinity head on in the way we oh we don't need to think about men uh, men don't have those uh, emotional worries that we need to worry about when it's completely obvious that men have trauma too and especially like you've talked about the you know the traumatic aspects of of being in prison and and how um you know you just said your study it's, it's hard to find the light in it because it is it's a really horrible situation for so many people and so it just seems so obvious to me to to look at the gendered aspects of those things as well and at the same time holding up the work that's been done with women and not trying to say it's either or so yeah i'm not going <laughs> i'll leave i'll leave that there but um what I will, what I do want to ask you to end on is that thinking about your work and hypothetically, if we had a room that we could fill with whoever you wanted to fill and you had half an hour to speak to them about whatever you wanted to speak to them about, who would you put in that room and what would you be saying to them? You know, the thing is, is I have had the people who I would most want to speak okay. to in a room, actually, yeah. without sounding... Um, and it's not possibly the the, 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 the levers for change that that, that you would mm. want um, at the highest level. But I you know I've I have done a lot of of work where I've I've been in prisons with um, young men who have been termed your bullies and basics, the people who you can't get out of the cell mm. to engage. I've done a lot of work trying to um, talk about some of this stuff we've talked about today. I'm not sure that answers your question as, as well as I would have <laughs> Well, liked. I think it's really, really um, refreshing that you say actually you've, you know, you have been in those rooms and you have been speaking to the people they really want to speak to. And, you know, I think that's a great answer. So I hear you also working on a book that will be out at some point soon. Yeah, so I'm working, I'm, I'm about doing the, the finishing touches to uh, a book for. Um, Ben Crew, Yvonne Dukes and Thomas Jugelovic's series on prison and penalities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called um, Failing um, Marginalised Masculinities, Classed and Gender Trajectories to Revolving Door Imprisonment in the UK. So Yeah, sounds great. Shortly, that's, that's a working title. It might change briefly, but um, yeah, no, a lot of what we've discussed here will feature in that. Brilliant. Well, everyone have to keep an eye out for that. Dave, thanks so much for today. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. I know uh, a good measure of, of how much I'm enjoying doing something by, is often by how much I talk. So <laughs> whether, that, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But um, I'm sure you're going to splice this into a hard, short, short <laughs> um, podcast that people... I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has liked or tweeted or rated the show. There has been an outpouring of support and praise for Dave since the release of part one of this episode. And I was really genuinely moved to see the criminal justice community rally around and acknowledge the efforts Dave has made and the value of his expertise. Goes to show that men can open up and show a little vulnerability and still be rated. I feel a bit like Joey Springer now, so take care of yourself and each other.